Well, this is training weekend. We've said that before. Training on the most important job that you have as a Christian, which means to be a disciple. We've talked about this, but I never really explained to you all these symbols and stuff that are on your shirts while you wear in the shirts. The reason why it looks so university-themed and all that stuff is because really being a disciple is a learning process, and it's something that you need to bring a level of seriousness to that you need to bring, like if you're taking it at school. And as you see those symbols, the first step is to follow. That's what God calls us to do first as a disciple. Then we learn. Right? We're lifelong learners who are continually learning from Jesus what it means to live the Christian life. And then this other set of symbols right there that we're going to talk about next. Because we've talked about, yes, you want to follow Jesus. That's good. That's important. That's the first step. Then you want to learn from Jesus. That's really the second step. But learn to do what? Follow him where? Right? What's the aim at which we're going to, right? And one thing that we can just obviously answer from the last sermons is, well, we wanna be people who are following Jesus closely in the sense that we're living our lives pattern after his. Same thing with learning. We wanna be people who are constantly learning from Jesus and having our characters shaped to be the kind of people Jesus wants us to be. But then there's that third element that's very clear from the Gospel of Matthew that your job as a disciple is not to just be a disciple on your own. Your job is not even just to help other disciples. Your job as a disciple is to make more disciples. That's what God calls every disciple to do. And I want to start with looking at those first disciples. Back in Matthew chapter 4, open up. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew again this morning. We won't look at as many passages, but the ones that we do, some of them you're probably familiar with. I want you to see that Jesus is just laying this out as the kind of attitude and the kind of aim that we need to have as disciples. is always outward focused, thinking about what new disciples can I bring in and what new information and new investment can I bring to the disciples that are here. You see, right here at the beginning, when Jesus calls these disciples, we already talked about this story in Matthew chapter 4. On the Sea of Galilee, you had Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he uses their, their skills that they already have. He uses their job and their calling, and he says, hey, you know what? I've got a new calling for you that you're going to take some of the skills that perhaps you learned as a fisherman, the patience, the wisdom, the rugged toughness that you need to be a fisherman. You're going to take those, those things that you learned in your job, and you're going to bring those over, but now your aim is going to be different very true for us as well. If we're going to be disciples, we want to take everything that God has taught us collectively, whether it be through your family, through your school, through your experiences, through your sports, whatever it is, we want to take that and then bring it into this process of discipleship and say, I want to be outward focused and being a fisher of men. The idea is throwing out the net, not for fish now anymore, but for people to see people not only become disciples, but to see people become mature disciples. So if we're going to define disciple one last time, mathetes, it's this word disciple. And what it means is, in this context, it means to be a fisher of men who makes more disciples. So we said, okay, first step is you got to be a follower. Second step is you got to be a lifelong learner who submits yourself to the teachings and the yoke of Jesus in Matthew 11. And then here, well, the prerequisite, I mean, he doesn't even say this like, after he's discipled Peter for a year. I think it's interesting how Jesus goes about these things. He's very clear with the disciples what their job is going to be, even if he doesn't make them do it yet. 
He just tells them, hey, it's going to be tough, even though right now it might not be tough. He says, you're going to be fishers of men, even if that wasn't their first task. And we see throughout the Gospels, they end up doing that, but that's not what they did for a while. They just followed Jesus around for a while and just like learned how he talked, learned what he said. He didn't send them out as fishers of men right away and early. He sent them out as they had been trained and equipped, but it didn't take very long. About a year after this ministry started, they started to do their first sort of outreach towards other people. And that was after they had been invested in enough. I want to show you something. Uh, I said we multiply, so I want to do some math with you this morning. Uh, now I actually wrote it on the screen, so it won't be like last night where I messed up 77 months. But this math is pretty, uh, pretty nailed down. We can ask, we can ask uh, Vera if it's right at the end, but uh, I think it's right. Uh, those of you who are good uh, math students, I want you to think if one group of 10 of you, if 10 of you got together and said, okay, we're disciples of Christ, we want to take this seriously, we want to go back home and actually do what Pastor John was talking about and what the Gospel of Matthew was talking about and more importantly, what Jesus was talking about. We're going to do that. We're not just going to talk like we're going to do it. We're going to actually do it. If you had a 10 of you, which is like not that many of you, if 10 of you said, we're going to take this seriously and all we're going to do is make one new disciple every year and then in that process, we're going to train that one new disciple to make one new disciple every year, which is not that many, right? Don't you think like, Sometimes we get overwhelmed thinking, man, make disciples. I got to win 10,000 people to Jesus. Well, that's not really how it works. It works with winning one person to Jesus and then training them to win more people. If you did that for four years, I wonder how many disciples. Like if you thought about it, if, if you all did this for four years, how many disciples would you have? You wouldn't have 40 disciples, right? That's adding, correct? That's not multiplying. That's adding, and there's a big difference between adding and multiplying, correct? And then, oh, well, what if I said in the next decade, before you become my age, you're, you're going to just make one new disciple every year who makes more disciples. If just 10 of you, like that's not, the, that's not a ton of you. Ten, that's your, your friend group. And then maybe another friend group, right? Ten's a lot of people, but that's your small group and one more small group. If you say, we're just going to take this seriously and win one person every year, and by the end of the year, maybe the first three months is you're winning them. And then by March, they're, April, they're saved. And then, you know, they come to revival in the summer and they're really growing. And then by the fall, they're really starting to take on what Jesus is saying. And then by wintertime, they're ready to go say, I'm going to make a disciple next year. That's not a lofty goal. We could have said three or four disciples. I'm just thinking, talking about one new disciple for each person every year. How many disciples would we have after 10 years? And then if you say, I want to take this even more seriously, what about in 25 years? Right? How old will you be in 25 years? You'll be around 40 years old. That's not that old. Um, it's not very old. But if you all said, this weekend I'm going to commit. We're going to make one new disciple every year, and then I'm going to train that disciple to make more disciples. Like, I think the numbers might blow your mind. The, num the four years might not blow your mind. After four years, there'd be 160 disciples from your group of 10 people. If every year, which there's like 160 people in this room, right? If every year, after, just for four years, if a group of 10 of you multiplied out and you all made a new disciple and each disciple just made one in a year, there'd be 160 of you. Right? Sometimes we talk about True North and we, you know, I, I talk to the pastor sometimes. It's like, what's one thing we can do to make True North better? One thing that we can do is make it bigger 
by having more new disciples show up and have you guys really, because like, you know, I can't disciple every student. You are going to have to start to take on the load to disciple the friends that you bring. You're going to have to take on the load to lead new people. And some of you are doing that. Like some of you are here only because someone brought you and they've been investing in you and they've made you a disciple of Christ, right? You chose to follow Christ, I know, but they invested in you, right? A lot of you are doing that. If you just did that for four years, just 10 of you, 160 disciples. That's, that would like double the size of True North. If only 10 of you. This is why it does not take all of you to have to do this. It'd be great if all of us did it, but all it would take is 10 of you if you really multiplied. What about after 10 years? This number might blow your mind, but by the time you're my age, if this pattern continued, you would make 10,240 disciples. 10,000 people would become disciples if all you would do is just train disciples to make more disciples and to multiply. This, this is not addition, right? That's multiplication. Okay, what about after 25 years? This number might blow your mind. Uh, you would have 335 million disciples. That's as many people are in the country, okay? If every year, every disciple just multiplied by two. If you just doubled every year, 25 years, the whole country would be one to Christ. You know how... Um, you know how your parents and, and people say, like, how the culture's gotten really bad, and you've heard that before, I'm sure. Um, and whether you believe that or not, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and some people are like, well, there's no way that things could get any better. It's gone. It's lost. Okay? Uh, in 25 years, if 10 of you simply just multiply out as disciples, you've won the United States of America back. And not back, better than it would have ever been. Because there's never been 335 million disciples in our country. Right? Do you realize the power of multiplication? If you can just walk away this week thinking of that right there, I hope that blows your mind. And if it doesn't blow your mind, then you don't believe that Jesus can win disciples. But this is one disciple a year. Passage I want you to turn to next is Matthew chapter 9, and I want you to see Jesus' mentality when he sees a multitude of people who need to be one. His mentality isn't, I'm going to go preach to all of them right now. I'm going to go talk to all of them right now because Jesus took on this limited form where he had to be in one place at one time in his incarnation, so he couldn't be with all of the multitude at that one time. But when he sees these people, he sees the mission field in front of him. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 35. This is Matthew speaking about Jesus. He says, When Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right, which is the good news that they can be saved from their sin, and look what he did alongside with that. He was healing every disease and affliction, right, which is very important. If you're coming along with a brand new message, you better have that authenticated. So Jesus is showing them. I'm not just delivering you some weird good news that's not really all that true. I'm showing you it's real, right? So he does these miracles. And then it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Uh, the word compassion means that he felt something in his gut. Uh, his gut hurt, his stomach hurt. You ever look at a situation and you get uh, nervous or scared and it's like you have a pit in your stomach? That's the description of the compassion Jesus has. He sees their plight and he just feels really bad, but not in a surface level like, oh, so sad, right? Oh, really bummer. Anyway, on to the next thing. It's like, no, he felt in the core of his being compassion for these people. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
what I want you to see, first of all, is that you have a mission field right in front of you. That, that's the first thing I want you to get this morning. You have a mission field that's right in front of you, and all of you have different people in your mission field. Now, some of you have overlapping mission fields. Right? Some of you go to the same school. Some of you are on the same sports team. Some of you are siblings. Right? You have people in your family. But if every year you could make one new disciple, and you train that disciple to make another disciple, there'd be a lot of growth that happens. Not just addition, but multiplication, right? The mission field in front of you. I want you to think about this. Uh, do you feel compassion for lost people? That's something I want you to write down under uh, point number one, letter A. And do you feel any compassion for them? You should feel more compassion for lost people. I think that's where some of us go wrong. Perhaps if uh, the only people you know are Christians, and if you do that for a long time, you may lose this, any sense of compassion for the lost people that are out there. And by the way, you got a lot of lost people in your Christian circles too. So it's not saying that you can only do evangelism if they've never heard about Jesus. If you go to a Christian school, my guess is there's a lot of evangelism you can do. You just got to do it differently because there are all those people walking as disciples of Christ. I mean, you, you know they're not, right? Not even in a church are all people walking as disciples. So there's a lot of evangelism that can happen there. But the question is, do you feel compassion? Right? Just think about, real quick, if, you're, if a person's not a Christian, right, and this is, might be easier for those of you who are uh, disciples right now, um, what kind of a situation is a non-disciple in? Right? Like, where do they find themselves? Because Jesus, it says, feels compassion in his gut because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right? There was no leadership in their life. There was no good leadership. There might have been bad leaders. There might have been bad authorities, but there's no good leadership in their life. But you think about lost people. If a person's lost, they're enslaved to their sin, right? Right? They're enslaved to it. Like their, their, their envy and their covetousness and their lust and their lying and their, and their cursing. It's like they're enslaved to it. If, they, if you said, hey, why don't you stop sinning today? They'd be like, I could try, but then they would fail. They couldn't do it. They're enslaved to sin. Have you ever felt bad about that? They're led astray by their own passions. Their, their, their hearts are pointing them in directions that are self-destructive. And they think that they will become happy in the end by pursuing the things that they want right now. And Jesus says, remember, lost people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Their whole desires are pointing the wrong way and they're self-destructive. Right? Think about think of just one lost person, whether it be someone in your family, someone in your school, someone on your sports team. Like if they got everything they wanted, if they got their heart's desire, would that be good or bad for them? I think you know ultimately, if you're thinking in a Christian way, if they got everything that they wanted, it would leave them high and dry and empty and it, they would not have Christ because they don't want Christ. Yeah. And if you're a disciple and if you've believed and if you're following, remember that you have the solution to their problem. Which sounds arrogant to say, right? And if you told someone, I can solve all your problems, it's like, okay, all right, chill out, dude. Like, that sounds arrogant to say, doesn't it? But is that not true? If you're a disciple of Jesus and someone's not a disciple of Jesus, you have the solution to their biggest problem, which is their sin problem with God, because you know the gospel. You can provide that. You also have God's word that you can share with them that can direct them how to 
like make wise choices, which will be better for them. Like you have answers. You might not have all the answers, right? God has all the answers, but you have the beginnings of all the answers to help people that are lost, right? You can do something about it. You can help them. But I don't think you'll ever talk to people who are lost unless you start to feel compassion for them. And remember, by the way, that if God did not save you, you would be lost too. So don't think that you're a disciple because you're smarter or you're wiser. Remember what Jesus said, I thank you, God, that you did not reveal these things to the wise and understanding among you, but to little children. So a prerequisite just about to being saved in God's word is that you're not one of the wise and understanding of the world, right? Because the wise and understanding in the world, 1 Corinthians says, you'd have to become fools in the world's sight to really become a Christian. So you're a Christian because you're a simple person, because you trusted God like a child, right? Because you maybe had to make yourself like a child in humility. Right? And if God had not saved you out of his great mercy, you would be just like them, headed just like them on a path, just like them, if not worse. So Jesus shows us we should feel compassion. Look at verse 37. Look what Jesus does, though. You'd think maybe that compassion would spur him on to action, right? Like, what would Jesus do if he feels compassion? It's like, I got to be with him. That might be a logical response. Maybe it'd be, all right, disciples, I need you, 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 you. Okay, go to talk to them. Go talk to them. We'll cover as many people as we can right now. That might be what you would expect Jesus to do. Right? That's not necessarily a bad thing, but look what Jesus does in this instance. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Plenty of lost people. Plenty of people that need guidance. Plenty of people that need discipleship. But the laborers are few. How many of us are there? Twelve, maybe a little bit more. Right? We see in the next chapter, we see that 12 apostles are sent out. So it's probably a small group at this point. There's all these multitudes. Thousands of people, and there's only 12 apostles. And Jesus. Now you got 13. It's not that many people. Look what he says. Well, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So if you're overwhelmed when you walk around your public school, which maybe you should, maybe you've never felt overwhelmed at the amount of lost people that are there. If you even go to your Christian school and many of them are so self-deceived, if you've never been like, whoa, like there's a lot of lostness here. There's a lot of lostness here. And you feel that like I need to do something about it. I hope your first reaction is I need to pray to God to send out more laborers into the harvest field. I, we need more people that are going to win these people because I can't do it on my own. Right? That's why the power of multiplication. Right? When you say, I'm going to make a disciple that makes more disciples, that's how God does this in his means. He doesn't send angels to go preach. Right? That might be more convenient or easier for us, but the way that God has set this up is that you get poured into by the people that are disciples. Right? And Think about your Christian life. How much have you been poured into if you're a Christian? People have taught you. People have labored to help you understand. You have small group leaders who, who come up to the mountains and sleep on a wood plank so that you can, I don't know, be a better disciple, right? They, they do all this, that they reach out to you. They text you. They call you. And some of you don't even text back. Some of you don't even reach out back. And they're just trying to pour, you, pour into you and pour into you. And then it's like that discipleship that you're giving now as you transition and now you're going to be a disciple maker it's time to pour that back out. It starts with this. What Jesus does here is praying for more disciple makers. I, I fear that that's not our first reaction. And I think maybe this is not our first reaction because we think of discipleship 
in a very human sense. We think in a very pragmatic sense. Because if I pray, instead of talking to somebody, maybe I'm wasting time by praying, right? You could find your way to that logical thinking because that makes some sense. But learn from Jesus, right? Like we talked about last night. Be a learner of Jesus. What does he do? He prays for more disciple makers. Now, what you're going to see him do right after that is send out all these disciple makers, 12 of them, right? And he's going to preach. So it's not like he's lazy. It's not like he's saying, oh, I want other people to do the work, but that I'm not willing to do. Obviously, Jesus partakes in this, and the disciples do the same thing. But what he says is, we got to pray for more. Have you ever, ever gathered with maybe the Christians on your school campus and prayed? Not just prayed in general, um, like praying for a meal or whatever, but have you ever prayed and asked God to bring more harvesters to that harvest field? Maybe you've got a coworker that's a Christian where you work. Have you ever said, hey, well, we, need, we should pray that God would, would get more disciple makers here because we probably can't handle all these people at once. Sounds like a, almost a weak thing to do, doesn't it? Like, why not just try to take care of it all yourself? But this is the way that God sets it up. And God answers this prayer. Notice, what does it say? Pray a little bit. In verse number 38, what does Jesus say? Therefore, pray earnestly. Earnestly means with an intense passion. Some of you are earnest about your sports. Some of you are earnest about your school, right? You're going to do what it takes to get an A because your parents or because you want to or whatever. You're like, you're earnest about it. I'm not going to get a B yet in this class. I'm going to get an A. Some of you are earnest about your sport because you're competitive and you want to be best at it. Right? Not that saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's earnestness. He says, here's how you should pray. Earnestly. Like, you're not going to take no for an answer. Like, you're going to keep praying until you get what you're praying for. Like, you're going to make sure that this happens in any way you can by going to God and pleading with him. And by the way, the people that pray for more harvesters are always the best evangelists. They're always the ones who are winning more people, right? Because some of us are, uh, we're not multipliers, we're adders, right? Like if you're popular, you can bring, you know, people to a small group, you can bring people to a church, but that's just adding, right? Multiplying is not only do you bring them, not only do you reach out to them, but you actually invest in all of them and now they can start investing in more people, right? That's multiplication, so some of you are doing more for the one disciple that you're making than for the five friends that you're trying to win all at the same time. And I'm not saying it's bad to win five friends at the same time. I'm just saying realize your limited capacity to actually disciple all five of them. We all are more limited than we think. Even Jesus says we need to pray for more winners, more soul winners to be out in the harvest field. Uh, now, if you're really going to do this, this will probably shift the way that you treat people at school. This will shift the way you think about school. Right? Like, why are you at your school? Why are you at your job? Is it, not, is it just to make money? Is it just to get a good grade? Is it just to graduate high school? Well, if you're a disciple, you're there for more than just those reasons. Right? Because if not, he'd call you to leave. Right? Because these people leave everything behind. Well, God's going to call a lot of you not to leave your school behind or leave your job behind, maybe for some, some of you in some strange situation, but most of you are going to stay right where you are. Right? You're going to go to the same school. And you're going to work at the same place. Now, you're going to be there infiltrating it to win those people to Christ. That would change your whole life. And that's what I want you to write down for the second point. I want you to make your whole life about disciple making. Like your whole life. And I really mean that, your whole life. Your family life, your sports life, your school life. Your whole life needs to be about making disciples. Now, this verse that I have on the screen. It's where we should turn to. You might have expected us to go here at some point. It's the last three verses of the book. 
And it's the last thing that Jesus says to these apostles, which means sent ones, by the way. Um, Last thing he says to them before he leaves. Interesting, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Verse 16 says he goes up on a mountain to deliver some more... uh, some more knowledge. How, how often has he done that? Right? He did that in the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on the mountain, sat down and spoke. He did that again in, in Matthew chapter 17. He goes up on a mountain, speaks for God. Right? I mean, that's, this is just the pattern. And he goes up on a mountain and says, all right, here's our job. Here's what we need to do. Verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all the nations. So he starts out by saying, okay, I have all authority. All authority where? Uh, In Israel? All authority within the little sphere of the church? What does he say? Read it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is the sovereign king of the world. He's unrivaled in his power. All authority has been given to him, and he calls us to make disciples. That's the first thing that you should think about, okay? If your whole life is going to be about disciple-making, here's what's really helpful for you to know, that Jesus has all authority to tell people to become his disciples. This is not some multi-level marketing scheme, right? You have no authority. You're just a con artist, right? You just want to con people and use them. That's not discipleship. That's not what we're talking about. Now, the principles might overlap, but what we're saying is, hey, what we want you to do is, we want you to make disciples for Jesus. And the reason is not because I think that, you know, you're just such a good friend that you just need more friends and, and you're so right about everything that everybody needs to follow you or I'm so right and everyone needs to follow me. It's because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So there's not a single person at your school that Jesus doesn't have all authority over. So when you call them to say, hey, you know, to be a Christian means the first step is to, you know, repent of your sins, right? Ah, oh, you can't tell me what to do. You can't, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. I define for myself. It's like, okay, well, I, you're right. I don't define it. You're, that part is correct. But Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus defines this. Right? It, I had a professor one time at, at seminary, and it was on evangelism. And, and he liked to say, if someone asks you, who gives you the right to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who gives you the right to tell me that I need to change my life? There is a correct answer to that. It's Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth, is telling you as a disciple, not that you have the authority to tell them what to do, but that he has the authority to tell them what to do. So don't go in there, you know, trying to make disciples and say, all right, here's how I think you should do it. Here's how I think you should live, right? It's saying Jesus is very clear in his word that we need to repent of our sins. So I can say that with authority because Jesus said it with all authority. I can't give my opinion with all authority, but I can give what Jesus says with all authority. And this is very clear. Repent and believe the gospel is said with all authority in heaven and on earth. It says, make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It's hard when we read this because we oftentimes read go as the first thing. We have all these verbs. But really, there's one verb in this phrase, and it's the, the, the verb make disciples. Do you see matheteo? I've only given you the same root word in Greek. You're like, a lot of Greek words. No, it's actually just been one root word, right? Mathetes, mathete, matheteo. What does that all have in common, right? Math? No. It's discipleship, right? Mathetes, that's a disciple. Mathete means to to learn. And then to matheteo means to make someone a disciple. 
just interesting. All those words, we translate them differently, but they all come from one root word. And then when he says, go, baptize, teach, the, the, the participles that come underneath this, that's how you do the main command. So the main command of your life and your main purpose in life needs to be to make disciples. If I said, why do you go to the school you go to? The answer is to make disciples. Why are you on the sports team that you're on? Well, to make disciples. Why do you exist? Why do you have these friends? Well, it's to make disciples. And you might say, wait, is everything about evangelism and finding new people? Well, only one of those is about that. One way that we make disciples is by going. That's the first step, right? Going and going into all the earth and making disciples of all the nations, right? That's the first step, going. But then, baptizing, right? So going, baptizing. What are these words all about? Well, going means what you think it means. It means you have to go. Most of you don't have a ton of disciples that are coming up to you saying, hey, please disciple me. Please disciple me, right? Some of you maybe have a, a, a person or two, but most of us are going to have to go. Then it says baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That you're going to be placing them into water? Well, what happens when a person's baptized? Well, it means they've become a Christian, right? So going and baptizing, we can kind of group those into one thought to say, yes, evangelism is a main priority. And if, if you're, you know, if you think that it's not, then, then we're missing how Jesus speaks, right? There's a lot more than just evangelism, but there's certainly not less than evangelism. And you can't say that my purpose as a Christian is to do all the other stuff other than make disciples and, and go and, and baptize, right? And, and a lot of you can be more goers than baptizers and more teachers than all those things. I get it. There's three different ways that we do this, but all three are part of the process of making disciples. So you can write this down for letter B, going and baptizing. We can summarize that as we're trying to reach people for Christ. People who don't right now follow Christ, we're trying to reach them. Once you write that down, Look over real fast to Matthew chapter 9. This is a familiar text to us. We looked at um, something from Matthew 9, but we're going to read the rest of the story. This is back to the story when Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Right after that, uh, when Jesus had followed him and he rose, um, immediately after, notice what, uh, what happens here. This is Matthew 9, verse 10. So it says, Jesus reclined at table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. How do we get to a house? Whose house is this? Well, verse 9 said, Jesus calls Matthew, the rich guy who sits at the tax booth and you know, gets all the, the, the toll booth and gets all these riches for however long he did that. Now Jesus shows up in a house. Whose house are we in? Oh, we're Matthew's house. This is interesting. And who shows up to Matthew's house? Who are Matthew's friends? Right? Well, not the greatest people, right? tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus sits and eats with them and talks to them. In verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. You don't need a doctor if you're feeling fine, but those who are sick. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice, right when Matthew becomes a disciple, what's the first thing he does? He says, Jesus, do you want to come over for dinner? And then they're having dinner. Who does he invite? He doesn't say, I just want time with Jesus. He says, I've got all these friends. I've got all these people. They should follow you too. 
And Jesus starts to work on these people. And it's not like all of them became Christians when Jesus talked to them, right? We don't know what happened to all of them. Perhaps some of them did. Perhaps some of them rejected Jesus in the end. But we see this like overarching concept in the gospel of Matthew. We already saw that tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are becoming Christians before the Pharisees and before the scribes. So there was some receptiveness to Jesus among these people. So just notice, the first thing that a disciple does is they say, all right, who's in my circle? I want them to know Jesus as well. Same thing for you. Going and, and baptizing, right? Which baptizing is that, that overarching thing to say, we want to see people to become Christians. It's reaching people for Christ. If you're a brand new disciple this week, you think, where should I start? How can I make a disciple? Well, step one is just let's start acquainting the people you know with Jesus as well. Right? Oh, I don't want to tell them. I'm ashamed and embarrassed. Well, right? remember what Jesus says. I don't, want to be, I don't want anybody to say they're ashamed of me because I'll be ashamed of them before my father. Right? But if you're a brand new disciple, even if you choose today to become a disciple, you probably got people in your life that you already know and you want them to become disciples too. That's step one. We even see that modeled in Matthew, who is Matthew a righteous, godly guy at this point? Right? Probably not. He's just brand new. He's fresh. Just became a Christian, just started following Jesus like that day is what it seems like. The way verse 9 and 10 are just so sandwiched together, Jesus is just eating at a table. Where was he before? He's just at a tax booth. Now all of a sudden he's at Matthew's house eating. Back in the passage, back in Matthew 28, it says, Go. Make disciples of all the nations. So step one is go. Step two is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? So seeing them become real Christians right? and, and baptizing them, which by the way, right, what do we do to disciples? We baptize disciples. We don't baptize people who aren't disciples. So if you think that, you know, if you're baptized at seven years old and you think you're a Christian because of that, well, perhaps your church got it wrong or perhaps your parents got it wrong or perhaps you got it wrong and it, we got it all out of order. Right? So you become a disciple first, that's the, the right order of things, then you get baptized. So if you're a disciple and you're really following Christ and you haven't been baptized, well then it's time to get baptized. Right? We got a baptism service at our church in March. We should probably talk about that after this sermon. But he says, get baptized. Right Now these people are baptized, they're, they're one to Christ. But then look what he says next in verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, Jesus is saying the next step is once they're reached, once they're like in the door, so to speak, once they're, they're, they're coming now, they're coming to church, they're coming to small groups, they're a part of this group, right? they're, they're a disciple, they're really following. What's the next step? Well, it's to teach people to be like Christ. Right? That's the idea, teaching people to be like Christ. The way Jesus literally puts it is teach them to observe, that means to do all that I have commanded. So, uh, and even you can break that down into two steps, right? If we're getting really systematic. How do you disciple people? Well, step one is teaching them what Jesus said, right? Because they can't do it unless they know what he said. And then step two would be, all right, now that you know what Jesus said, now let me help you do what Jesus said, which is why if you're a person who's like, I hate school, I'm not an academic, I, I'm not good in school, or I, or I just don't like it, can I still be a learner or a teacher? Yes, some of the best teachers are the ones who don't like books and they don't like papers and they say, let me show you how to do this with your hands, like mechanics and people who help you with music. It's like, they're not really good writing papers, no offense, musicians, maybe some of you are, but like uh, you know, left brain, right brain, like the artists, right? Are you, do you really want to write a lit, big, long 20-page paper on some art? Probably not, but you could show someone how to, to draw, 
You could help them with their, with, their, with their strokes, with their hands, and figure out how to draw the right things, right? You could help them use, you know, shading and all the things that you do if you're, a, you know, an art. I was going to say a drawer. I don't know if that's the right. <laughs> drawer sounds like a drawer. Um, you know, I don't know. But you could probably help teach them, right? So you don't have to be textbook in class to, to help teach someone to observe what all Jesus has commanded. But for you, right, again, if your purpose in life from this point on is, I am going to make disciples because that's what Jesus calls me to. Okay, well then you need to take your discipleship seriously. So what you're taking in from God's word and what you're taking in from your leaders and the wisdom you're getting and all the practical, like actual real life stuff that you're learning to do for Jesus, then you're taking that and investing it in someone else. And the easiest way that that is seen in this ministry is through those of you who are older, spending time with those of you who are younger, right? As a senior hanging out with a freshman, Right? You hang out for long enough, you know what's going to start coming out of that senior's mouth? It's going to be wisdom. Like, hey, 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 don't do that. That's annoying, right? Uh, hey, uh, this, let me help you. Like, let me, eh, I don't think you should do that, right? That's going to happen, right, seniors? You're going to, if you hang out with freshmen for long enough, right, seniors? Like, you're going to tell them, like, eh, I used to be like that, right? Yeah, let me, let me tell you the way. Let me show you the way, right? Uh, don't be like that. Don't do that. It's what happens when you learn how to drive, right? You, you all don't know how to drive, you know, immediately, especially, uh, Never mind. You, you probably know what I was going to say, so I'll stop there. Um, yeah, unless you're like a video gamer and you race cars or whatever, then you think you know how to drive. But uh, some of us uh, didn't grow up playing race car driving games, right, ladies? Right? Uh, so you got to learn how to drive, right? Uh, same thing with you guys. You don't know how to talk to girls. You just got to be taught, right? You just got to start talking, right? You just don't know how to do it. You're scared, right? So there you go. I hit you both. Um, and, and like, okay, how are you best taught how to drive? Is it through that stupid online thing that you take? And it's like, you know, all the rules and the tests? Or is it better when you get behind the wheel and they say, all right, now it's time to turn out, turn out on like La Paz Road or Alicia Parkway. And you're like, oh, are you sure about that? I don't know if I should do that. And you're like, could we do more laps in the, in the, the neighborhood? And they're like, nope, just, just drive. Wasn't that, like, if those of you who've learned how to drive, wasn't that, like, the biggest learning time? It was the first 20 minutes of you driving on Molten, right? And the first time you got on the freeway, do you remember that? The first time you got on the freeway, you drivers? What my dad did, he likes a, uh, I, he wouldn't call it this, but, like, exposure therapy, I suppose. Just, just like, oh, you don't want it? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Uh, so the first day that I didn't, I got my permit, right? And then you, after you get your permit, you, what do you do? You... Do the, you have to do the behind the wheel, right, for the three hours. So I did that with this, you know, little old lady who's smoking in her Prius, right? Uh, we kept taking smoke breaks. I'm like, oh, what, are you, what are we doing here? Uh, whatever. We went around Dana Point. She took me down to, like, Dana Point and Doheny, which was, like, really rough because those turns there are not, they're not great. If it's your first day driving on the roads. And then that afternoon, my dad's like, where'd you go? I'm like, oh, we went on, you, you know. Molten, we went on La Paz, we went down to like Crown Valley. It's like, oh, cool. Did you go on the freeway yet? I'm like, no, I, I didn't. It's like, great, let's get, on, uh, let's get on the freeway. So we got on north on Alicia, and there were two like semis, like one on one side, and, one, and I was like partying the Red Sea, and the, this is the first day I drove, right? Well, I learned a lot that day uh, about driving, and I'm glad I didn't crash, but hey, that's how you learn, right? 
I didn't learn so well with the textbook. I learned because someone showed me, right? This is what discipleship is. It's not all teaching, 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 notes, 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 right? There's a lot of that, right? It's why we do it at church. But you know, I hope that your times and sermons are like, like one or two hours a week. And then the time you're getting discipled is 10 or 12 hours a week as you spend time with other Christians. Like it should be more than how you're teaching. And some of you are wired to just like, you're good with school and you like taking notes. Others, you don't like taking notes. And I'm saying that's okay as long as you're taking what Jesus is saying and putting it into practice. And then saying, I'm gonna help other people do the same thing. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Not just to learn, but to observe. There are a lot of people that get discipled and all this training, all this head knowledge, but they never do. And there's also people that get trained to do and it's not backed by what the scriptures say. So you need both. You need both. If you're a person who's more the academic side, well, then you need to practice. And if you're a person who doesn't like the academic side, you should give it a little bit more of a try because we want to be keeping everything on the rails here. We don't want to be discipled by someone who misleads us. Right? You want to be scriptural. Even if someone holds a Bible in their hand and says, this is what God's word says, unless you're careful to understand exactly what the text says, don't be misled by that. Even Paul warns about people who will use the Bible to use a bunch of false teaching. Even Satan uses the Bible for false teaching. You've got to understand exactly what the Bible says, which is why both sides are important, the academic and the practice. And implied in all of this is that you're training people to multiply disciples. That's the fourth thing here, that you're actually taking the new disciples you have and not saying, great, now you know all of it, now be an adder, right? No addition, right? We want to multiply. You're teaching that person to now pour it into somebody else. It's like if you've ever been through the partners program, at some point, the person who's taking you through partners has probably said something like this. Hey, we're going through this program, but one day you are going to take someone else through it. So I want you to make sure that as you read this stuff and you write stuff down, that you take good notes in your partners, man, because one day... You're going to have a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed freshman that you're going to be taking this through the partners program, and I want you to be able to disciple them and instruct them, right? That's just one example, but many other things are like that. Training people to really multiply disciples. Like, if you miss this part, right, then we'll just make a ministry full of addition. We'll add a lot of people, right? And, and, and maybe that will work for a short amount of time. But if you never train other people to make more disciples, then uh, we're missing something significant. And the last one, right here in verse number 20, after he says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Here's the problem. What is Jesus about to do at this point? Do you know? He's about to walk away. And then he's about to go on a mountain. He's about to zoop. Right? He's about to spawn out, right? The ascension. He's about to leave. So when Jesus says, okay, I'm about to leave, this next thing he says is very important. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There will never be a time where Jesus is not working with his disciples on earth. Remember that Jesus is always with you in this task. Remember that he's with you in the work. That when you're spending time with, uh, I don't know, a freshman or your freshman is spending time with your younger sibling and you'd really rather be with your friends and you feel like, no, you know what? Today's a good, I need to invest in these younger people. I need to invest in a, a little brother or a little sister. And you think, ah, oh, this is, I don't know if this is working, right? Doesn't seem like we're making linear progress here. It seems like there's a lot of ups and downs. What does Jesus say to you, disciple maker? Jesus says, I am with you always in this. You're not alone and you're not doing some human work. This is not some scheme or some 
human contrived plan. This is the most important, biggest picture thing that is ever happening in this world. You know that God has made all these people and there's multitudes of people and God is using his church, which is a small group of people to win the multitudes one by one in the greatest plan of salvation that there possibly could be. You step in line as a saint now who wants to make more disciples, following after the example of hundreds of years, of centuries of Christians doing the same thing. The whole reason that you're a Christian sitting here today is because Christians made disciples and they made more disciples and now you've been made a disciple, right? Your parents, right? Your leaders, myself, like there are people who've come before us that have poured things into to me or to, to you or to a small group leader and now they're pointed into you. It's gonna be your turn to make more disciples with all that you have been invested in. Remember, Jesus is with you to follow, to learn, to multiply. Just want you to think this is the, this is the big picture of your life. This is what I want your life to be all about, making disciples. That looks like reaching people. That looks like seeing people really saved by understanding the gospel, responding to the gospel. But it also looks like you teaching them to observe and to do all that I've commanded, which for most of us takes the majority of our work, right? Is we're trying to help people live like Jesus wants them to live. And in all these things, we're multiplying discipleship. Hope that this uh, series was helpful to inspire you and to get you pumped up to go back home and make more disciples. I'm going to pray. We're going to do one more song, and I'll be back up with some instructions about small groups and other things. But let's pray to God right now. God, we recognize that this is a, uh, a task that's too big for any individual here. We can barely uh, disciple more than one person at a time, and maybe two or three or four or five, but uh, even... Jesus only discipled 12 key people at once. And I just pray that all of us would pick some people in our mind that we know are our mission field who are unreached. Pray that we would see them brought to salvation and believe that you can do that through us. And we also pray that we'd find some people that are Christians, that are younger Christians or or less mature Christians that we can start to invest in. We know that this is the calling of our whole life and every genuine disciple here has some kind of desire to be a part of this pray that you would give us the strength and give us the courage to take bold steps in all this, to uh, extend the discipleship relationships with people who uh, maybe we don't know so well. Just pray that you would give us success in this and just encourage us in this work. We know that one day we'll be home with you. We know one day we'll be in a perfect world where everyone is a disciple, where there's no more conflict or hardship or pain, but we're in the presence of our Savior Jesus who lived and died for us. We pray that this morning we worship him rightly as we sing this song. I pray we worship him with our lives as we commit to do all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.